Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. It's an easy thing to say, but it's a really hard thing to do in practice, especially if you're managing a team. So you don't only want to be doing this for yourself. Right. You want to be making sure that you're actually setting your team up to succeed with very clearly defined goals and following up. My name is Esprit Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. I call it actionable empowerment. Every single episode, you'll hear the story of a fantastic woman in tech, from engineers to founders to investors to journalists to designers, all sorts of different females in tech who have thrived. I want to share their stories with you so that you can can know what resources, mentors, and life situations they accessed in order to get to where they are today. Enjoy. This episode is powered by the Swiss Entrepreneurship Program. My name is Milena Milic, and for the past two years, I've been working for a Swiss Entrepreneurship Program. So this is a Swiss project that helps empower communities in Western Balkans and also Peru and Vietnam, helping entrepreneurs and organizations that work with entrepreneurs be better. Thank you so much for powering the Women in Tech podcast. Welcome back to the Women in Tech podcast coming at you from Bosnia. What? Yes, we celebrate women in tech around the world. And I am so excited to be here today with Jess. Hello, Jess. Hi, how are you? So good. I'm so stoked that you were able to make the time. And because you live in Sweden, but you're in town right now here in Sarajevo, Bosnia. And um, and so and you're kind of like you live here and you live there, you're kind of like back and forth and you're all around the world doing your meetings. So I'm glad we were able to cross paths. Go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody and tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really stoked to be here as well. So yes, my name is Jessica Shelley. I work as the COO for Ministry of Programming. And we are a technical co-founding business that helps startups basically to succeed. So we do everything from uh, advisory to building technical platforms and making sure that our co-founding partners have the support they need to be able to be the best in their industries. And how did you find this opportunity? Right. Like when did so, this come to be? How long ago was this? So actually, I started this company in January this year, so it's quite recent. Yeah. However, I've been in contact with Faris and Rashad, who are the co-founders, yeah. uh, since about July last year. Yeah. And it came into play that I, I used to be in, I've been in technology for quite some time and in different leadership roles, managing the business. But however, I decided about last summer to start my own business. Right. And I was actually looking for a technical co-founding partner myself. And looking everywhere from, you know, and it's in, hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm quite picky as well, to be honest. So mm-hmm. I have a very high standard and very high expectations. And I was looking at everything from, you know, the Eastern Europe companies to Russia to uh, India. And I just wasn't satisfied with what I could find. And a, a colleague, ex-colleague of mine actually recommended that I speak to Ministry of Programming. And it was love at first sight. So uh, we mm-hmm. just like found this amazing connection. I wanted to hire them for my own company. And they actually are co-founders in that startup now. 
but they also ended up hiring me. So it became a dual, dual sword thing. So exciting. uh, Yeah. So now I work uh, for them as their CEO, as well as running my own startup within health tech. And before you became this powerful, driven businesswoman, (laughs) let's go back to the beginning. Did you have technology in your home growing up? Well, yeah, I mean, it was always around me, but I, I can't say I was tech savvy when I was young. This is something I picked up when I went along and it actually happened by mistake. I studied ec- economics and psychology yeah. and I traveled the world. I was studying all over. So I was in Australia for part of my degree, ended up moving to London and started working in recruitment of all things, went into HR and then quickly found I was very lucky to be in very um, people-centric organizations that realized that people were the core of the business. So, Where, where did you grow up? I, I grew up in Arizona. Well, actually, I grew up everywhere. So I grew up in uh, five different countries, but I mainly grew up in Arizona and mm. in Sweden. Uh, a little so bit in Norway crazy. as well. Norway as well. It's so crazy. So the, the one thing with me that people are like, whoa, is I went to, I think it was like, 11 or 12 different colleges. I need to count. It was a lot. <laughs> With you, it's like I grew up in five countries. <laughs> I've never, that's amazing. And you're not even a diplomat, right? It's like, <laughs> or a diplomatic family um, or an army brat or anything. It's very unusual. And it's exciting because you got exposed to so much culture earlier on in so many different languages that you understood uh, how the that kind of um awakeness can help impact you professionally later on. I'm sure that serves so much now um, in your professional career, but we'll get to that in a second. Okay. So you um, are kind of self-taught with technology, exploring it yourself. And what were uh, a few of your initial uh, career moves in the tech space? So, well, I, I, when I transitioned from the HR space to general management, I was at a telecommunications company and uh, running the business there. So then we... No, but before you even started running businesses, like bring it back to when you started learning how to even be a professional. Uh, Okay. So I started off my career at Citigroup. Uh, Mm. So big American corporation, obviously. Uh, a great school. So you really learned a lot about business, about uh, how to run businesses. This is prior to tech. <laughs> so I wasn't technical at all at this point. This right. is back in 2006. And I then went on to um, be the head of recruitment for Gap, you know, the yeah. retailer. Yes. And for, for EMEA. So I went and uh, again, not tech at all, but I was recruiting for tech. Right. And recruiting for their, they were transitioning all their infrastructure from the legacy systems to new systems. Right. So we were working very closely with uh, infrastructure partners, with Oracle, with Accenture. Uh, so very large scale IT projects. But then right. it was more from an HR perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was my first introduction to tech, I would say. Yeah. And, uh, and you started to have to learn because it, you can't obviously with credibility recruit for something that you don't understand. Right. So that's where I got introduced to it. And mm-hmm. uh, I worked with that for a couple of years. And then I went on to work for McDonald's head office. Mm-hmm. But there it was heading up employer branding. So mm-hmm. I actually transitioned a little bit away from tech for, right. that, for that period of time. Um, Now, employer branding, what is that? So it's basically making sure that uh, you're telling the story. So it's a lot about storytelling, Mm -hmm. about what you're actually doing as a business for your community, for your employees, Mm -hmm. and for um, projects that will help the community to evolve, basically. Mm -hmm. So we worked a lot with everything from making sure that our employees had everything they needed in terms of their career paths, right? but also making sure that we were supporting Opportunity Now, which is the probably the biggest diversity um, community within the UK. Yeah. Worked a lot with the universities. We were working a lot with making sure that we had accredited programs. 
where we could connect our employees to, for example, um, university degrees, to A-levels, to certifications. Right. And uh, just making sure that we were the top employer of choice. And uh, yeah, so that was one of the best jobs I've ever had. Oh, cool. It was amazing. What made it the best job? Like what, what was one core thing that made it extraordinary? I think McDonald's as a company is, uh, you know, the gap between the perception and the reality is, is huge. The reality is it's definitely one of the best employers on the planet. They do so much for their employees and they have a structure that just works. It's a really good school. You learn best practice and mm-hmm. you get to meet some of the best leaders from all over the world. We worked with the Olympics, so we were actually instrumental in uh in looking into how we were going to support the Olympics for 2012 in London. Right. So you just get to do kind of projects that you just don't get the opportunity to do in most organizations. Right. And you work with world leaders on a on a level that's uh, extraordinary. So you get to learn a lot. And uh, and just the nature of the job with employer branding and working with employees is very fun. And and then after McDonald's? And uh, I decided to move back for, to Sweden for personal reasons, mm-hmm. for family reasons. Yeah. And uh, there I, I made the transition. I felt that whilst it was amazing to work at big corporates, so Gap, McDonald's, right. they're some of the biggest employers on the world in the world. However, um, what you do realize is you get quite siloed into your expertise area, your area of expertise even. So what I wanted to do is get the whole perspective of what it meant to run a business from right. top to bottom. So what, there I transitioned into general management and uh, went into a slightly smaller company that we doubled in size within the first two years. And it was a telecommunications uh, retailer. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's when I really came across more technical aspects in the job and uh, more infrastructure-based companies. And one of our clients there was actually Scribe, which then is a company that recruited me to go in as their CEO. So that was my first C-level position, I'd say. And was it um, daunting at all to transition into becoming a C-level for the first time? I think you just have to be really humble and that you you need to learn as much as you can. You basically need to be a sponge and just talk to people, learn, be observant, uh, realize that you don't know everything. And and I'm still doing that. Obviously, yeah. you learn every day, right? So right. Uh, I don't think that ever stops. And, um, and just making sure that you're putting in the time because at the end of the day, it's a huge responsibility and you have a... Big role to fill. So you need to make sure that you're putting in the time, making sure you're talking to the best people, you're doing your homework, and you turn up for work, basically. So, And every day is a learning opportunity. And I'm so excited for us to be able to learn from you because there's so many things, even in our conversation the other night at the Startup Grind event, we were talking about the best tactics and finding the right team and, and how to organize that team. But we'll get into that later. Moving forward, now, now you're a seasoned C-level professional as well as a startup founder. Uh, walk me through how you became both. Um. I think it was organic for me, really. I mean, it's about putting in, you know, the hours. At the end of the day, I do think it, I do believe in a work-life balance to an extent, but there is something that says that, you know, 60 hours is going to give you more than 40 hours. It just does. Yeah. Um, when you're young and you're still learning and you you have to um, make sure that you're well prepared, it, it is about putting in the time, putting in the effort and uh, making sure that you work with great people. And I think it's a lot, a lot comes down to actually preparing the team making sure that you lead from the front, that you never ask anyone to do something you're not willing to do. And um, I'm keeping a breeze with the industry best practices. Yeah. So 
I really do think there's an element that comes down to putting in the time, putting in the effort. I was telling someone the other day, I've, I've been in a, an experience the last couple of weeks where a couple of times someone um, uh, or a few different people were like, at six o'clock, that's it. And I was thinking about, you know, no more business. And I was thinking about even here in Bosnia, how the culture is like after hours, um, no more work, like just play. And uh, that's not the way I function. And But I would balance and health and everything are a priority to me. And so I started thinking about it and I would define it as work is a lifestyle. Um, and what I work on, it has a lot of purpose behind it. I feel really connected to my purpose. So I don't have a desire to necessarily shut it off. I mean, I do want to make time independent from it and make sure I'm rested and healthy, but I believe in what I'm doing and it's like a, a form of an expression. So I don't have an hour that I'm like, okay, I'm not going to think about it anymore because it's my lifestyle that I feel connected to. Do you, do you experience something similar? A hundred percent. I mean, there's a really common expression that is, you know, being an entrepreneur means working for a few years the way that no one else is willing to, so you can live the way that no one else is able to later. Right. And also for me, it's not so much about the, uh, the lifestyle per se. It's about enabling others to do their dreams and also mm. enabling uh, communities to change. So we work a lot with impact products, which means that it is a passion. It's a lifestyle, like you say. It's not something you just switch off. However, I think you need to find the life hacks where you can actually make that work because there is a point where actually it's not productive to work 90 hours a week for a sustainable period of time. Right, so right, right. you need to find that balance, yes, but I don't think the balance is 40 hours a week, switch off and don't care. It's about um, finding their hacks you can do. So making sure you're training an hour a day. You know, that's one hour. You got 23 Training as in exercising. Exercising yeah, yeah. is crucial. I, do, I do that. Yeah. Um, I think it's about uh, making sure that you're learning. Uh, Oprah Winfrey advocates the fact that you need to put five devoted learning hours per week. Oh, I've never heard that. So if you don't, literally, like that's one of the hacks of Warren Buffer as well. So that if you really? talk to top people around the world, they literally schedule. And the, I think the key is scheduling. Like you have mm. to schedule it in. And you need to make sure that no matter what, no matter how much you have to do, you're ensuring that you're always making sure that you have the new information that you're uh, reading, that you're learning from the best. Right. And that's five hours a week, no and, matter what comes. And one thing I think about in my own productivity is I don't look at, and I agree with you that we shouldn't just like work 90 hours a week. I don't look at the hours. I look at what am I uh, completing what what is what are my goals for the week? Have I met those goals? If I haven't, that's okay. But why and reassess? Or um, what goal would I like to complete? And if that's been completed, that's great. And not just I'm not talking about like a to do list or a task list. Like one singular major thing. Like if I accomplish this, it will move the whole thing forward. Um, so yeah. Taking, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, what moves the needle is one of the key right. questions you need to ask yourself, not once a day, but basically every hour. Am I doing what really matters? Totally. You know, the 80-20 principle. Yeah. Uh, 20% of your results will give you uh, 80% of your, or 80% of your work will give you 20% of your uh, results and vice versa. Yeah. So if you're really, actually, it's an easy thing to say, but it's a really hard thing to do in practice. Yeah. If, especially if you're managing a team. So you don't only want to be doing this for yourself. Right. You want to be making sure that you're actually setting your team up to succeed yeah. with very clearly defined goals and following up. I think following up is a key thing as well. Because a lot of people, you know, they set their goals, but then they forget to touch base and to follow up and make yeah. sure 
Tell me about your role now. Yep. So right now, basically, my role is everything from uh, managing the strategy of the company together with the rest of the C-level team. So with our CEO and our CTO. And it, it comes down to looking at the direction, doing a gap analysis, where are we now to where we want to be? Uh, how are we going to achieve that? Setting clearly defined goals and tasks that derive from company vision to team vision mm-hmm. to individual goals. So mm-hmm. we work with the OKR methodology that Google uses. So we set clearly obje- uh, defined objectives and key results. And then we work to follow up with the team on that on a weekly basis. And uh, I think it's really important to realize that uh, you can only, you can't scale. So you, you, no matter what you do, you have 24 you hours. You as a day. person, yeah. You as a person don't scale. Yeah. So it's about enabling others to be able to do um, great things, basically. Uh, is there a place where we, uh, like, if we're just starting out in our professional careers and we want to learn more about Google's methodologies that you've adopted, where's an easy place to learn about that? I mean, there's some really good, honestly, there's some really good stuff just on YouTube. If you Google uh, OKRs by uh, by Google, and actually it didn't even start at Google, but they, they made the methodology famous. So there's a lot of information online. You can get really good introduction sessions within an hour on YouTube and really start to understand the methodology but then there's also very good books about it and I mean I'm happy to share materials with you if you if you'd like as well and share some links yeah that'd be great and you guys will include it in the show notes so thank you Carl for including that in the show notes for us um and and your startup tell us more about your startup and how you balance the two yeah, that's always a challenge. I'm not going to lie. So I'm very fortunate because obviously Ministry of Programming is almost like a holding company. So we are almost like a incubator, if you like. Right. So we have a, at the moment, we currently have 14 different startups. And as my startup is one of their startups, it's very, there's a lot of synergies. Right. So it's a natural fit. Whereas if you're trying to work at a different job and trying to run a startup on the side, I think that would be more difficult, to be honest. Right. Um, they have a vested interest in the success of, of both, you know, companies. So, right. uh, my startup is called Maintain. So it's a healthcare, a healthcare product, which basically is aiming to improve mental health around the globe. Nice. Yes. I so, love it. So how, how does it help us? So basically there's at the moment it's an MVP. So there's only three components at the moment, but it's going to be a lot larger in the future. So currently it's a platform where we can uh, share stories and inspire others. There is a concrete uh, part, which is actually my favorite part of the product, which is called Take Action, where users can self-generate cognitive behavioral therapy methods that have helped them. So what actually helped them, and then there's an upvoting algorithm that will tell you what helped the most people. So they can actually do a lot of what psychologists will take hundreds and hundreds of dollars to assist you with. A lot of that you can actually self-learn. Wow. And this is proven through decades of research that actually there's a lot, it doesn't, it doesn't replace psychology. I don't want to say that. So, right. but it is a very good compliment at a very good price point. And we also provide telepsychology. So we have psychology online and we can actually give access to psychologists for 10 euros per time which is um, unheard is of in inc- Sweden. This is crazy. There's so many um, mental wellness tech companies coming out right now. It seems to be the time to innovate in that space. I would say we're actually seeing a transition now from the way it's been done traditionally. I think people are starting to realize that the traditional methods just aren't enough. One in every four people are suffering around the globe. And this has been the case for, I mean, if you look at the statistics, suicide rates in Sweden have not dropped for 15 years. Wow. Yeah. So I think we we could start to see what 
kind of benefits we can have from integrating psych uh, psychology and technology and really start to move that industry. And I think this is just the beginning. Uh, a lot of people are recognizing the opportunity. But if you think about the transition from medicine, how long that's taken, I think this is the beginning of a 20-year cycle that we're about to see. And and so you're a master in optimizing human performance, so to speak. Uh, you're, uh, you're looking to help people in their personal lives, and you've mastered it in your professional career in operations and in hiring. What kind of tips can you give us and what to look for in recruiting talent, um, how to communicate um, our company cultures and find the right people to suit our positions that we need filled, as well as once we find them, how do we motivate them and organize them so that everybody's happy and we get the most efficient work completed at all times? Is that even possible? No, that is like <laughs> utopia. <laughs> but well, uh, how do actually, we get to, as close to that as possible? <laughs> I, think, I think you're spot on. I I mean, there's a proven fact that there's zero, there is no such thing called 1.0 correlation in recruitment. It doesn't exist. It's a utopia. However, you can get close and you can mitigate the risk. Yeah. So I think the one thing I would say is science. You know, don't uh, look at what methodologies actually work. There, there is a lot of data on this and people don't use it because the most common thing I see in recruitment and what I also did when I started off, you know, I, I've been working with recruitment for 15 years and I, I made all the mistakes and I still do, you know, occasionally no one's perfect and you won't get it right every time. However, there is definitely data. You can look at what methodologies are more effective. You can train yourself in competency-based interview techniques. You can use tests. Mm -hmm. um, a common notion is that you can assess if someone's intelligent in an interview. You actually physically can't. It's not possible. You can get an idea of their adaptability or their how they present themselves, but you can't actually assess intelligence per se. So use the tests that's out there. It's cheap. It's effective. It's Where do you quick. find these tests? Uh, I mean, they're, they're everywhere. So depending on what country, there are different providers that you can use. And I can also send you some great links that for that. That would be great. I yeah. mean, CEB is one of the biggest providers worldwide. They can, CEB. Yeah. So they, they have great tests that you can use all over the world. And it's, it's really cost effective if you think about what it costs to get hiring wrong and the time, most of all, that you spend in inducting these people. Totally. And, uh, and, you know, you have to work with these people daily for years, probably. So you want to make sure that you hire slowly. We talked about this the other yes. night, but hire slowly, fire fast. I know that sounds harsh, but a, a bad hire can literally be like cancer to your organization, whereas a great hire can transition you to to places that you just couldn't even imagine before. Always hire people that are smarter than you, always, you know, and pay a little bit more to get the right person because hiring somewhere, someone that's the wrong person is the most expensive thing you can do. So you might look at someone and say they're too expensive, but ask yourself what the alternative cost is. Uh, obviously, that's harder for startups where you have a bootstrapping um, problem. So you need to be very resourceful. Uh, but there are other ways you can do this. You can hire very hungry, talented people and train them yourself, which is always good if you have the time. Uh, that's always almost always the best way to get someone that's hungry and wants to learn. It really depends on what you're trying to recruit for. Um, use, the, use the science, use the data, probe. Don't expect them to tell you the truth from the beginning. Dig and really, you know, ask the five whys. Uh, ask, you know, the, the, there's a very typical saying that you can ask why five times usually to get to the truth. But people don't usually use this in recruiting. So you usually go on gut feeling, right? It's a very common thing. And, and you tend to always, there's something called recruiter bias, where you tend to like to recruit people that are similar to yourself. Mm, yes. 
I mean, in life and it's part of the problem. It is part of the problem because what that doesn't do is give you diversity in your team. I was just going to say the word diversity is what fell into my mind too. And I mean, diversity from so many angles, not only, you know, based on uh, gender or equality and so on. That's also very right. important. And people miss it. No, I was thinking about our, uh, diversity, full spectrum, full spectrum. So you need color, to at- gender, like, uh, uh, ethnicity, country, religion, like everything, but also skill set, right? So yeah. if you're recruiting someone that's identical to yourself, you're basically getting a copy of yourself, but you are going to be missing what you can't cover yourself. So right. you want someone to compliment you in your team and you want a team that's going to compliment each other and be able to carry each other's weaknesses, but also push each other's strengths. Right. One really key learning for me was the notion that you shouldn't learn, you shouldn't look too much to develop your team where they have weaknesses. So a lot of people like in performance reviews, they'll look at you and they'll say, okay, so you're really good with this, but you're not quite as strong on XYZ. So we're going to work on XYZ. Yeah. No, wrong, completely wrong. So yes, work a little bit on XYZ, but make sure that with ABC, where they're really strong, you're giving them more of that tasks because those tasks are what's going to escalate your performance in the organization. Mm. So if you're utilizing people's strengths and then through the diversity in your team, which is your responsibility as a manager to make sure you have, then you make sure that you cover their weaknesses with other people's strengths. And for someone to learn something from the start, it's going to take them so much longer than to utilize someone that's already strong in that area and to escalate the whole team together. So that's where you're going to see your compound effect. Yeah, you brought up the long term that um, hiring is this relationship. So to hire slow because, uh, you know, you're married to this person for a very long time. But even the costs as an employer in onboarding itself, you usually have different teammates involved. So you have their salaries. You have your own time as the employer. You have multiple teammates, multiple resources, and on top of the expense of a new person. So even if within the first like three to six months, it doesn't work out, that was a lot of not working out. It wasn't just making a choice. It was a very expensive choice. So um, it's something It's something that I think a lot of us um, will gain value in, um, in really like processing those thoughts uh, more mindfully rather than just like, they seem awesome. <laughs> and let's just take it from there. So I guess you can't tell a lot from a resume, you're saying. I mean, you, you get a base. So you obviously if someone's done something before, it does, especially if they've been promoted within that field and they have a great industry knowledge, it does say something. However, it could also mean that they're, excuse the expression, fat and lazy. Yeah. So you really want to be in there. You want to be testing. And a lot of a lot of people actually make the mistake of believing someone at face value where maybe they've had a team. So when right. they say, you know, we did this, be very wary of the we. So yeah. you want to say, okay, oh great. Gosh. That's great. What did you do totally. as a team? That's awesome. But what did you do? How mm-hmm. did you participate in this? What exactly in detail? How did you pray to take the project from X to Y? So Elon Musk says this, he, he always says that, you know, if someone's done, that did something in detail, they'll be able to talk to you till you can't even stand to listen anymore. Like they'll be able to talk to you about granular details of the project. If someone hasn't done that, it's very easy to tell with probing. So I'd say, you know, push, ask, probe and, and see it as dating, you know, a recruitment is dating, especially in startups, you're building a baby together. A company is a baby. You have to teach the baby to walk. You have to make sure that it learns how to run. You have to make sure it's getting the right food every day. You have to make sure it's getting the right nutrition. So putting the wrong people in that uh, 
see, it's basically like asking someone to be the father of your child after two dates. Yeah. You know, and yeah. don't be afraid to ask someone to do many interviews. If they're passionate about your project, they're going to do it. If they're not, they shouldn't be there to begin with. So a lot of people, you know, they'll tell me you're very demanding in your recruitment process. Yes, I am. Absolutely. I mean, this is someone we're going to be working with for the next couple of years. And not only do I have a responsibility to the company to get the right person, I have a responsibility to the team that they're going to get the right person because hiring the wrong person isn't just detrimental to the bottom line and the top line because you actually have the alternative cost, right? So you, you're missing out on what you could have been doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also have the team morale. If they're having a switch in team all the time, it's really hard for them to be productive. So every single person that leaves is a hack in the team. I'm not saying the goal is zero percent turnover because it's not. Sometimes you want some turnover. You do. Wait, speak to that. Yeah. I mean. What? I'm like, I have no clue what you're about to say. And I'm complete. (laughs) I'm like, what? This is news to me. (laughs) I mean, you don't want a high turnover, right? So that's disruptive. But some turnover can actually be positive. So when people get too lazy or too comfortable in their role, and they want to sit there waiting for a fat paycheck that's coming every month, you you don't need them there, to be honest. Um, That being said, you should always look at yourself first. Have I given them the tools? Have I given them the resources? If it's still not working out, it's about, you know, hiring faster. Sometimes they're just not good for the organization. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, you actually don't want 0% turnover. Also, there's a really, really valid point to the best people in my, in my, this is just my experience and my perspective. So there'll probably be a thousand different people that want to say something else. My perspective is um, you don't necessarily want someone that's going to be wanting to be in their role for five years. You don't necessarily want someone that's just going to push the same process. You want someone that's at least in startups, Mm -hmm. you definitely want someone that's going to come in and be a game changer. That's going to go in and do an amazing job. That person is most likely very intelligent, very driven, and they're going to get bored. So if they're doing the same thing for too long, they need change. And in an ideal world, you'll you'll want to be able to facilitate that change within the organization. But the reality of startups is sometimes you're working in very flat organizations and there isn't really a career path for that person to go into that would fulfill their need at that time. So McDonald's actually did this in an amazing way. I had a mentor, well, one of my managers always said that our goal isn't for people to stay here forever. Our goal is to facilitate them to be the best they can be in their role And then they might go somewhere else and then they'll come back. So their goal is, you know, let's make people that are amazing within their industries. Let's help them get there. Let's push them. And then they might go, they might test the waters and then they'll come back to us when they're even more senior and we have a role where they can actually be. And I think that's a really good lesson for me because you don't want someone, if you want someone that's going to be happy forever, you probably won't get the best people to start. And so, and you say, well, two things. One, I heard this recently about Google that um, a lot of Google employees have had, you know, four and five career changes within the Google organization. They'll want to move cities or they want to move roles into a completely different department. So they just, they have an internal recruiting process, which is, is really interesting. Um, everything you're saying is, is super cool to think about how to grow a company in a more efficient way. You said that you like a long hiring process. How many interviews, uh, do you typically recommend? 
I mean, if I could choose, I mean, Google is extreme on this. So they're known for having at least eight or nine with, with quite extreme test processes as well. Um, I think in a startup that's difficult, but at least, you know, you want to make sure that they're meeting different people from the business because they're not only going to be working with one person. Um, I would say at least a screening call so that, you know, if you're even wasting your time completely, cause you can get a lot out of a screen, screen call. I would say a test up front, uh, both, um, a, like a capability test as well as a technical test, especially if you're recruiting for a technical role. Yeah. So there you could save hours from the rest of the business right away because you can actually see what they're capable of. I would say a practical test where they have to do an assignment that's job related. Mm-hmm. So you want to see how they're actually performing on the job. And whilst, you know, in an ideal world, you'd have them in there for a week doing projects with you. That's not really realistic, but you can definitely give them an assignment that's demanding and that they're going to have to put time and effort into in their free time. Because even if they have a demanding job, you want to know that they really want your job. Right. Because at the end of the day, when they get in there, you're going to want them to, to be very engaged. What? Um, then, oh, oh yeah, sorry. No, yeah, no, and no, obviously please. the standard interviews with the, uh, with the technical interviews, but also with competency-based interview techniques. And, and I'm very, you know, a quote from our HR manager was, you know, she got scared when she saw my competency-based framework the first <laughs> time. And I just laughed and I said, well, that's fine, but they have to pass this if they want to work here because we want the best. It's, it's really, it's really cool. And the one thing that came up, um, when you and I were talking the other, the other day was I'm an entrepreneur that get, gets lost in the romanticized storytelling. Like, uh, a lot of people I find in the interview process will tell me a story, not me not knowing it's a story and I'll get, uh, I'll feel really great rapport. And it has nothing to do with the testing or anything. So I'm like, oh, this is going to be amazing. Everything I've ever wanted will be achieved. And then you said, yeah, no, you, you're like, no, you have to do testing. It's really required, which we've already talked about in the interview. But can you speak a little bit about like in the interview process, I guess following in love with the, with the utopia, with the story, like a potential candidate is telling you? Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad thing to fall in love with your candidate, right? You're going to be working with this person for the foreseeable future. So there is something called the airport test. You know, would you want to get stuck in the airport waiting for a plane for 20 hours with that person, you know? And that's a good, that's a good thing. If you, if you feel that, that's a good thing, but it doesn't mean they're the right person for the job. So for example, developers and salespeople usually have very different personalities and they shouldn't have the same personality because they don't have the same skill set that's required for the task at hand. So I think it's just about really assessing what you're recruiting for, what the needs of the business is and how that person matches against that. And it's not about catching people out and like making sure that you're a human lie detector if you like. That's, That's kind of not the point, but it is about seeing if the story holds up. So you want to be testing that story in different interview techniques, right. in different points in your interview. You're asking the same questions, but in different ways. And very soon you start to see if there's actually a red pattern or a red thread, sorry, yeah. uh, or if if there are discrepancies. And I think it, it does come down a little bit to experience because you start to see cues that you, you know, after a few thousand interviews, yeah. you really start to see a pattern and you get very used to to interviewing yourself and you get comfortable in yeah. that situation. Um, unless you're going to do a polygraph, you know, there's no way of knowing for sure a hundred percent, but there are definitely ways of, of getting around that. And I think science is a key thing in that. Was it you that I was having the conversation about some statistic about rapport? Was uh, it you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's 0.14 correlation out of one. That's, that's really low. I mean, it's not the lowest there's handwriting analysis, which they actually shockingly still use in France 
which is, you know, to me, it just doesn't make any sense, but people still use it. But, uh, but rapport is very low. So you need to be... Con- explain, explain the numbers. So basically, a 1.0 correlation means there's a perfect match. So, so for example, it, one will directly mean the other. So there's mm-hmm. a perfect truth right. between the two. Now, there, 1.0 correlation does not exist in recruiting. There is no way of being 100% sure that that person is going to be great for your job. However, there's definitely a way to be more sure. And science data testing combined with um, structured interview techniques combined with obviously elements of rapport because you want to like the person, you want the team to like the person. But if you just go on rapport, then you're really setting yourself up to fail. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, you know, when we're building a company in the very initial phases, um, it's a, a tough journey and it's a lot of pressure and we want to feel that people are in this with us. And I think sometimes we could be blinded by that energetic exchange rather than testing for skill set and really thinking about it from a more enterprise way of thinking. Um, Thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to share before we start to wrap up? Sure. I mean, I would just add that, you know, it's, it's really easy to sell the vision and sell the, um, sell where you're going and sell your journey. And some people don't even do that, which is a mistake, of course, because you want people to get engaged, but also sell the reality. So don't be afraid to say, you know, actually this part's not going to be that glamorous. This part's not going to be cool. And you've got to be okay with that. You know, yeah. do we have sign off on this and, and really align expectations because at the end of the day, uh, you're not only recruiting for the company, you're recruiting for that person's career choice as well. So that person is also reliant on you and you're going to be that person's uh, manager, leader, call it what you like, but you're going to be an integral part of that person's career. So they have a large dependency on you and you have a large responsibility to them to make sure that that's the right match for them as well. Uh, So I say it's a two-way street and you have to have a really open communication and that will solve a lot of things combined with science. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How can people find you online and find out more about your company, both companies online? Sure. I mean, uh, we have a, obviously a website, which is uh, www.ministryofprogramming.com. And I'm on that website, as well as the fact that you can, of course, find me on LinkedIn. Can you spell your name for everybody? Jessica Shelley, which is Jessica, J-E-S-S-I-C-A. And surname Shelley, which is S-H-E-L-L-E-Y. And I'm based out of Sweden, so it's easier to find my LinkedIn there. And yeah, you're more than welcome to contact me if you have any questions. And does your uh, mental health startup have a name yet? Maintain. However, we just have a landing page at the stage. We're going to be I meant releasing. website, not name. Yeah, yeah. It, we do have a website. However, it's a landing page, so it's not going to look like that in three months. So I'd encourage to come back in about three months because it's going to be <laughs> cool. a completely different story. Uh, but it will be www.maintain.com. And, and how do you spell that? Maintain is M-E-N-T-A-N-E. Perfect. And then there's ministryofprogramming.com as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. It's been amazing. It was really exciting to have our conversation the other night. I think um, having someone that is not just a recruiter, but also, uh, and you're not now, now you're COO, but a startup founder and a uh, someone completely passionate about technology and you're all the things. So it's <laughs> exciting that you could bring so many different perspectives to what it takes to build 
build a strong culture and a, a strong team to both a startup and a, um, a more advanced company. If you guys want to connect with more incredible women in tech around the world, remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. And you can say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Thank you. This is Jessica Shelley, COO of Ministry of Programming, a technical co-founding business based in Sarajevo, Bosnia. You're listening to Women in Tech. It would not be possible to celebrate all these women in tech who have been extraordinary here in the Balkan region without the Swiss Entrepreneurship Program. Thank you so much for powering the Women in Tech podcast. This is a Swiss project that helps empower communities in Western Balkans and also Peru and Vietnam, helping entrepreneurs and organizations that work with entrepreneurs be better. What we're working on the most is uh, empowering the community of entrepreneurs in Western Balkans. So that means Serbia, Bosnia, Macedonia and Albania. And our team is working in Serbia and Bosnia. So one of our main activities is bringing uh, foreign experts and mentors to work with the local entrepreneurs and managers and CEOs of companies. My name is Milana Milic and for the past two years I've been working for a Swiss Entrepreneurship Program. To find out more about the Swiss Entrepreneurship Program, go to entrepreneur-in-residence.com. That's entrepreneur-in-residence.net. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.